IROC Space Radio. Roger, restart. Now I'm looking at a red. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to another episode of The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and you are listening to iRock Space Radio. We're part of the iHeartRadio network and proud to be so. Hey, tonight we have a great guest. I'm so excited. Um, Greg Chamatoff is a real astronaut um, and has uh, flown in space twice. He did a long duration mission on the space station. And um, he also flew on, on the last flight of the space shuttle Endeavor. He was born in Canada and is now an American citizen. Um, I was joking with him that some of our best citizens seem to come from Canada or Australia or in I'd like to say Texas, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's great that uh, Greg was able to give us some time. And we're going to be talking about at first, we're going to talk about his newest uh, entrepreneurial project, which is really exciting. Um, it's called Space Teams, and it's a virtual reality system that, well, you know what? I'm just going to ask Greg and he's going to fill us in all about it. Hey, Greg, thanks for coming on board. Hey, happy to be here. So tell us, uh, uh, let's start with that. Then we'll go back and talk about that, you know, that boring astronaut I flew in space stuff. Let's let's start with your project. It's really exciting. Uh, so space teams, what is it? Space Teams is a, well, there's, there's a commercial uh, version and a sort of a STEM version, but it's basically the idea was to make it possible for anybody to collaborate in uh, the development of, of humanity's future in space. Um, I suppose the fundamental idea is, you know, um, well, I, about eight years ago, I saw my kids playing Minecraft and um, they were about 10 and they were, you know, they were collaborating online, creating amazing stuff. I was like, why can't we do this for space? Why can't we do this to bring people together to, to make it possible for, you know, to do all the things we want to do in space. And um, so actually the original name for it was space crap. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good name. And, and that's still the name we call it internally. So you may hear me say it that way if by mistake, but um, yeah, we've been working on this for eight years. Actually, when I, when, when, when the whole idea came up, I reached out right away to Richard Garriott, um, who's a good friend of yours um, and mine. And uh, he flew in space with me on my mission. He came up for a nine-day uh, Soyuz flight. And um, I called him up and I said, uh, you know, because he's, you know, been working in this world, you know, his whole career. And I said, you know, you know, I have this idea. I think it's the most important thing that we, we you know, we've ever done. I've got to talk to you about it. And um, um, told him about it the next morning, at a, you know, at, at a, a brunch. And... Um, and been working on it ever since. So uh, I have students working at Texas A&M on this. Um, now we've, we're, you know, we, we had a space grant with NASA to develop this because NASA needs this for the future of uh, mission control. They need to be able to, you know, jump in and, and see what's going on in a mission in real time and, and follow it in VR and be able to stop and start and analyze what's going on. Um, so it's basically a, a it's basically like a digital twin, a virtual reality version of what's going on in space, and it can be it can be you know what, what NASA is doing. It can be with you know maybe someday what the Space Force is doing, and it could be whatever you create. And so we have a STEM version of this where students around the world use it to uh, to build out you know a, a concept in space, an end end mission, and actually fly it. Actually works because we put all the physics and engineering into virtual reality. And, um, so we teach kids about space and, uh, um, and we use it for real, you know, real life projects. So that's kind of, okay. So, so let me get this right. So there's somebody, let's say they're out working on the arm on the, on the space station or something. Right. And so there is, there's the real photography of it, but I'm going to guess, I'm just going to guess that the real photography can't hit all the angles, right. Of what's happening. Whereas You've got a VR version that's one-to-one with what they're doing, but on your version, you could swing around to the other side. You can do all these different angles that they aren't going to be able to do out there. So it's basically expanding their ability to understand their own environment while they're operating. 
That's right. Yeah, actually, um, maybe this is getting a little bit into the career side of things. But but um, while I was at NASA, uh, one of the things that I, I worked on for 10 years of my life was called Bird's Eye View. And it's still, if you look at the mission control screen right now, you'll see it's on the main screen of mission control and a lot of the mission controls around the world. And it's on the space station. And this was basically a digital twin before there were digital twins. It, it, you know, we never heard of the term, um, but that's really what it was. It was the space station and everything about it, you know, uh, which way the sun is, which way satellites are, where, where are you flying over the ground right now? Uh, and you could use it to figure out, you know, which window to go to right now to take a picture of something as it was coming up. Uh, but Mission Control had it, so they had situational awareness of where, what's going on with the space station right now. Um, and each discipline could use it to figure out things like, oh, gee, we just lost some community, our communication dropped off. Why? It shouldn't. The satellite's in view. Oh, no, you could look and see that uh, there's a solar panel that came in to, and blocked, you know, an antenna or something like that. So all the different disciplines could use it to, you know, in real time, understand what's going on on the space station or take it offline and then look ahead and say, hey, in two days, we're doing a spacewalk. Is this box going to be hot or cold? Is it in the sun or in the shade, you know, during that interval? Um, so all the different disciplines could use it to kind of look ahead and, and simulate. So that's kind of like, you know, that's ancient history now, but it's still being used on the control center. You know, we, we need this for every mission going forward, right? For every, whether it's Gateway, whether it's uh, Artemis, whether it's on Mars, whether it's on artificial gravity habitat in the future. Uh, we need to, you know, we need a model of this that we can use for, for planning, for training, um, for real-time monitoring, and also for problem solving. And so that's, that's what it is. Um, and it's come a really long way. And, but, but the, the uh, we also created a STEM version of this because it was a fantastic way to teach kids about space and they, they can design and collaborate virtually, get in, get in VR and experience what it's like to stand on Europa and look at Jupiter in the sky um, or, you know, build something and then get inside and fly it, um, land a spacecraft on another planet. They can do all this virtually and, and be totally inspired. So that's that's uh, what we've been doing lately. And that's really exciting. So um, this is a business, right? It's yeah. Your private business. Um, where did you... <laughs> How did you get that first money? What was that startup period like for you? I mean, you know, how did how did you go from, hey, I'm an astronaut. I got a cool idea to I have a company. Yeah. So it, 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 it's worked out really well. I mean, I'm a professor at Texas A&M University. And so, you know, all the development of this, all the modeling and the simulation and the, the tools we're using, you know, Unreal Engine, of uh, you know, four moving to five. Um all that capability, that all the coding that had to be done, this is all student built. I mean, so we were building this at Texas A&M. And at some point, Texas A&M says, hey, that thing you're building, you know, we should be commercializing that. Um, and so, you know, we already had a, a consulting company and and basically made an arrangement with A&M. So A&M owns this, Texas A&M University owns this. Uh, my company has a license with A&M to be the exclusive um, commercializer and also developer of feature applications for it. Um, so that's, that's uh, so the, this is a very cool arrangement because, um, you know, as we bring in, you know, funding to do something, we can pay the students and they get, you know, they get to be, you know, working on something uh, that has, you know, commercial applications and, they, you know, they're involved in STEM activities and running them and interacting with younger kids and inspiring them. Younger kids are, are uh, respond better to students who are a few years older than them and saying, hey, I could. I could be that way, you know, that's right in front of me. I could be that, like that person. Um, you know, that's, I can talk to them about space and everything, but if they see somebody that they could be just a few years ahead, you know, that, that actually is a, a great thing. So, yeah, so they're all, all of my students are involved in, in the STEM activities and everything and developing all of this. And it's kind of a, um, we end up supporting, you know, the lab at the university through all our commercial uh, endeavors. Oh, that's great. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's kind of uh, you hear a lot about this kind of thing, especially in like biomed and such from MIT, you know, where they, they will spin off. Uh, I'm sure it's been happening, but you don't hear a lot about that from other universities like A&M. Um, and um, so now you've got the you've got the entity. Um, now you have your own staff, you have your own office staff, or do you basically leverage off of 
Yeah. Uh, no, um, you know what? It's all virtual. In fact, during COVID, um, everybody was working virtually. And, you know, because it's software, that works very well. You know, we can even even have big, you know, test sessions virtually. Um, but, you know, what, no, what, what tends to happen is these students, you know, we've had students who came in as an undergraduate, worked for years in our lab, you know, became a, a super expert at some aspect of this, whether it's, you know, programming, whether it's C++ or Python or networking or AWS or whatever. Um, and then, you know, to continue as a grad student, you know, perhaps, you know, um, maybe even all the way to the PhD. And then, you know, we have to let them go eventually, right? They, they need to go out in the real world. And, um, but then they keep working with us because they love the project and they, and so they keep working with us sort of as consultants afterwards. So, so kind of have a network of, uh, former students, you know, who are also part of this. Now. So you have a great product. You have a great team. Um, how are you getting it out? How are you, is it being commercially marketed? Is it just right now to NASA? Where, where's it going? Yeah. So good question. And that's, that's been really challenging. And we, we always thought from the beginning that, the way this would get out would be through student uh, competitions. Like we would make it possible for students to use this to, you know, when NASA announces a competition, hey, design us a rover for the moon or whatever, or design us an oxygen generator for Mars or whatever, um, that is, the students would be able to use this to create and demonstrate, you know, the their, their design in action. And so that kind of, I guess, started us on the Space Teams Academy, which was a student version for them to like, you know, go design something and compete. Um, and so we, we ended up creating that ourselves. Basically, we, we have the competition we created ourselves. We provide all the parts essentially virtually and the students kind of design and assemble a spacecraft. So what happens in the student version, they, they, they design a spacecraft as a team collaboratively virtually. Um, they can, you know, you can fight over where things go virtually. You know, someone can put a part down and someone else takes it away and throws it off. And, you know, you can argue and design at the same time. And you could be anywhere in the world doing that with your team. And so, but the ship has to work. It has to really work. So there's kind of like an AI built in there that corrects you and tells you, hey, you know, it looks great. But if you, uh, if you start your mission, you're going to run out of oxygen in about 14 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Laws of, laws of physics, laws of physics. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So you fix the oxygen problem and then, oh, that's great, but you're going to run out of water in, thir you know, 35.24 days or whatever. So you keep fixing the problems, you know, until your ship works and actually can get you to the destination. And then they actually learn orbital mechanics. We have it all graphical. It's like a whole, just like in the movies, you see like a holographic table, you know, with showing trajectories and things. They don't need to know the math uh, to understand. Orbital mechanics is something I teach at the senior level in, at the university, but Kids can do it, you know, I have, you know, sixth graders doing orbital mechanics because we built a whole graphical capability. You basically stretch the orbits to make them go where you want them to go. Uh, math happens in the background um, and they figure out how to make their trajectories get to where they, they want to go. Um, and they land their spacecraft, they build a habitat on the surface, uh, and then they figure out how to sustain it. And so the, the ultimate goal for the students in this uh, space team's academy is, can you get to this other world? build a habitat and be sustainable indefinitely. And if you can do that, that's like the ultimate score, right? Just to be, you know, how, how, how sustainable can you, uh, can you get enough stuff there uh, as well as supplies and then use local resources to augment those supplies to stay indefinitely. So that's kind of the, the competition, but anyway, you uh, trying to get back to your question because we, 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 we are trying to figure out how to get it out there. And then that, that is one way is through student competitions, but, um, uh, and, and thankfully, NASA's, you know, helped us initially with a Space Act agreement to develop this for NASA, NASA purposes. But um, now we have a NASA grant um, for the STEM uh, activity. So, it's, you know, finally, NASA's behind it um, uh, in a real way. Um, and, and so this grant is, is aiming to reach 10,000 uh, students in schools over the next couple of years. So that so on the STEM side, we have a NASA grant now, and now we're trying to get NASA funding on the on the technical side, um, you know, and, and we've been working with them. But, uh, you know, we're on the edge of having that technical uh, support to actually build something directly for NASA. So we'll see. Wow. Um, yeah, you've, I've, I've got a lot of ideas and questions I want to hit you with, but uh, we have to take a break right now. Um, you are listening to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlinson. We are on iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio family, and we have the amazing Greg Chamatov, astronaut and entrepreneur. 
as our guest here today. We'll be right back. Hey there, spacers. We're going to continue our wonderful conversation with astronaut Greg Chamatov and CEO of Space Teams. Uh, you are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. And this is the Space Revolution. So, Greg, you were talking before the break about this idea that these students who are using Space Teams are able to create and project a, let's call it reality-based scenario for being able to go to Planet X, the moon, let's say, um, establish their community or whatever it is they're building there. And then based with based on the AI feedback loops and all the data that, that's already existent, um, they can actually create a plan for a sustainable permanent community, right? In, and based on real physics, real data input, providing supply chains and survival and you know, all that stuff. Have any of the, uh, well, A, NASA Artemis, B, SpaceX, C, Blue Origin, any of these people or Axiom who are building space stations? It would seem that what you're talking about here could be applied to each one of the programs that they're looking at. Let's say, of course, Elon's the big, the big fish going to Mars, right? I don't know if a fish would survive on Mars. But anyway, he's the big guy. He's going to Mars. And you could sit down with a team, let's say at SpaceX, and say, okay, we're going to do 100 people. Here's all the parameters, the inputs, all of that. And here's how you create a supply chain to take care of them for the next 100 years. Is that projectable from your software? Yeah, uh, sort of. I mean, from the student perspective, what they're doing so far is uh, it's a particular mission. and uh, But we have kind of the next version coming out. And the next version is the one that will allow you to sort of go anywhere and build anything. You know, in other words, the, the version, we, the STEM version, STEM, you know, let's call it the game. Let's call that a game. Um, that version, we put the parts and everything in there that you have that you get to choose from in, a, in, in, the, in essence. Um, but the professional version, you can put anything in, right? You can design anything. It could be any spacecraft, any system. It could be an oxygen generator. It could be a spacesuit. could be a habitat, a rover, any, anything, any part of any of those things. Um, it could be the actual design, right? And, and, you, can, and you can import that into the, the platform. So the platform is designed to integrate all the hardware and software and, you know, algorithms. So if it's a robot and it has a brain, right, it has an algorithm, algorithms for what it, how it would react to a situation, its behaviors, um, that also can be connected sort of like a plugin. So you really literally could put anything in there that you are designing or someone designed, you know, to, to build an integrated mission. Um, and then, yeah, simulate literally any mission anywhere in the solar system. So, you know, we, we don't have, you know, the internal workings of, you know, of the Starship in there, but we have the Starship in there and we are landing it on, you know, on the moon, on the South Pole already in our simulation. Um, and we are building, you know, other, we have students building other lander designs. So we actually have control of designing the cockpit and the controls. And so you can, you know, fly it automatically and then jump in, take over and land it. But you're in VR and you're really doing it. You're looking out the window, you're seeing you're seeing what the moon actually looks like um, with, with you know, perfect lighting and everything's exactly how you will actually see it when you get there. So, yeah, the idea is you could literally simulate any mission. So right now, um, right now, you're um, you have a boundary because you want all the students to be sort of I don't want to say well, you said game, by the way. And, you know, I, I would use that word when talking to students. It's a game. And and so there are boundaries within the game that say you're doing X, Y, Z and who can do it better or best or what, what is your best, right? Okay. And then you can take all of those parameters, put them into your AI, your, your system that you have, and then it opens up to anywhere you want to go, anything you want to do, basically. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the commercial version of this is, you know, build anything, go anywhere by that, you know, collaborate with anybody, uh, share models, uh, don't share them publicly, share them publicly. Um, and, you know, I mean, ultimately what we would really like to do, you know, we've built a ton of models. I mean, not just, you know, I mean, models of spacecraft and rovers and robots, but also radiation models and atmospheric models and gravity models and surface models, right? So we excavation models, so you can go and actually excavate on a surface. So we've done a lot of 
modeling. But ultimately, what we want is the user base to build all those models, right? So, like you know, um, we want the we want the user base to share models. Like create someone can create. An example I like is, you know, we, we don't have a GPS system for the whole solar system, right? Um, but we can imagine one. And if someone built one and designed one and could share it, you know, on this, on this, we call it like, you know, the Space Team's metaverse, you share your GPS design and then someone else can use it to figure out how to navigate to, you know, wherever they're trying to go, you know, you know, Phobos or whatever. Um, and when they can't navigate on the backside of Fobo, they can complain about the GPS system, not, not having a hole, having a gap, and then someone else can fill the gap and make the GPS for the solar system better. Um, so this kind of collaboration that we really would like to, to see. Ultimately. Yeah, it's interesting because you're basically building a virtual solar system. Right. And all the human interactions with that solar system. And and by the way, you mentioned GPS. One of the companies we've invested in is uh, is going beyond GPS now. Right. And they've come up with uh, some stellar navigation stuff for when you are out of GPS range. They're called RIA and they're getting a lot of traction, too. So that could be fed in. It doesn't really matter. All of these different navigational things. Um, but again, I am fascinated by the idea. I Something I've been talking about a lot lately is that let's say we're you know, Starship Happens or, or uh, New Glenn, you know, one of them, a reusable, um, what I'm calling an RSST, RRST, re reusable rocket ship technology happens, right? Uh, which is really going to open the solar system, right? And I believe shortly thereafter, some group is going to show up at one of these companies and say, okay, we need an initial, um, flight of 50 people and 10 years of resupply and here's everything we need to land their preposition um and here are all the variables we're going to have to answer and then they're going to have to sit down and write out a contract right uh and it's like the new pilgrims let's call it um so what your software would allow these people to do is have a realistic projection of all of those needs Right. And then they can sit down and go out in the markets and say, OK, this is going to cost this. And and then on the on the SpaceX or Blue Origin or whoever side, they can say, yep, here's what we have to charge you. And now and I'll, I'll wrap up with this is that then that group can go out and say, OK, we've got to raise this much money, you know, for over a 10 year period to supply our first 50 people at our community, our colony or whatever it is, you know, our monastery, whatever it is that they're going to build. And that's amazing. That's some amazing stuff. Not only that, you are exciting an entire generation who's coming up using the software, who's going to have a level of expertise. That's right? what we're hoping. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and the you know the idea is it's not just the design; it's the because it's you know it's a VR, it's an experience. You actually are you're actually running the mission. Um, you know, you run the end to end, end mission, or you create scenarios like here's here's what we expect to be doing when we get there, right? And look at that scenario and and analyze it, and then say, well, what if we added a robot? What if we didn't go as far away from the habitat? What if we wanted to bring this extra tool, how would that affect the mission? And you can explore all that before you build anything, buy anything, fly anything, um, right? And so you you have it all figured out. You know, you've, you've, you've been there, you've done it, you know, to, to, the, to the greatest extent you can. You've, you've really looked at the whole mission and everything you need and what you want to do um, and optimized it already. Um, that's the, and did it collaboratively. You know, that's, that's really the. That's, that, that's the key because, each one of these, and, and people, you know, I, I, a lot of our listeners, I know, understand this, some may not. Every tiny little aspect of construction, life support, transportation, everything in space is its own field of expertise and gets down to super micro levels. So, for example, the air in the habitat, right? And at some point, you're going to like, maybe you've got paint on the inside of the habitat and it's releasing a gas and eventually that gas is going to kill you. So what you're saying, because this is going to be crowd built over time, is that there are probably people out there that have that expertise and they'll put that data in. And so it's just going to get smarter and smarter. And so somebody builds a space hotel and based on this data, it goes like, you know, in 10 years, you're going to have this gas problem and you need to fix it. So it, it really becomes a tool for both business, government, 
and fun. Yeah, no, that's a good example. Like, you know, for example, uh, Lunar Dust is a, you know, there's some, you know, a lot of people working on Lunar Dust, you know, uh, very complex models, you know, being able to plug in a model like that, you know, to this is, you know, we have, we can make the, you know, uh, a model, you know, that's not as optimal as what the experts are doing, right? But we can plug in the experts model. Um, you mentioned uh, like, a, you know, paint, you know, basically diffusion of a gas. So when, when it, within within our models, within our within space teams, when you take parts and you stick them together and make a, a habitat or a spacecraft or whatever, all those modules have got, you know, they have uh, uh, devices, right, that are making resources, storing resources, you know, uh, um, using resources, whether it's power or data or oxygen or water or whatever. And so uh, the connection between all the modules allows us to do uh, basically resource flow. So we, so this is all being modeled already. In other words, when you, when you have a habitat there, let me give you an example. If a hatch is closed, they have a certain amount of a concentration of a gas on one side of that hatch. It won't diffuse to the other side, but if you open the hatch, it will. And it's already keeping track of that kind of thing. Um, you, you would have to probably, probably put in a model for the, the paint <laughs> chemical you're talking about. Yeah, but somebody will. <laughs> but somebody yeah. will, right? Yeah, right. somebody will. Somebody right. will, right. right. And they'll put in a better radiation model that accounts for propagation through the shell of that material structure, you know, on the outside of that spacecraft or habitat. Yeah, or secondary whatever. radiation. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, too. Um, you know, again, I talk a lot about the frontier and we're going out and all of this and the fact that you, your product, your, 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 your plan here is to create something that will basically at an ever more microscopic level predict what's going to happen when you get there. Um, it's going to save a lot of lives. It's going to save a lot of money. It's just going to make it so much. So people don't realize, for example, when, when the, um, when the ships used to set sail, Back in the day of the age of exploration, they used to overstaff the ships by like one third because they expected one third of the people to die. Right. That's that's, you know, they, they had a different sense of human life back then than we do now. Uh, but we do have that sense of the preciousness of life now. So what you're saying here is that we can we can't predict everything. We'll never be able to predict everything. Right. Um, but we can certainly use your software to create as much of a predictable environment as possible that humans are going to be living and operating in before the first pieces manufacturer, before the first, you know, anything is done, you'll have an idea of where we're going and what it's going to be like. And the beauty of what I really excites me about this, Greg, is you're starting with kids and gaming. And yet it's like a very, very serious thing you're talking about. Yeah. I think the, the idea that, uh, you know, it's what we do at conferences, right? We come with all these great ideas and we share them and talk about them, but we walk away from the conference and everybody's still working on their own thing and they're not connected to each other. So this, you know, the dream here is this is a way to connect all those ideas, put them together in the same universe and, and actually, you know, build it out, you know, um, together, collaborate. And you can still retain your own ideas and IP by, you know, but be able to actually put things together. And, you know, if you're trying to, if you're trying to figure out how to land your spacecraft on, on Mars, um, you're not an expert at modeling the surface of Mars. So it's fantastic. If you could use a tool that already has all that in there, has the atmosphere and has, you know, the Mars surface in there, you work on your spacecraft and, and then, you know, on the landing system. And so having these shared, you know, the shared space where we can, uh, collaborate like that is, is really amazing. Um, but from the student perspective, um, it, just the very basic thing, like it, exactly what you said, like the very basic thing is the solar system, right? And um, so like if you if you created a simulation with space teams from scratch and you didn't add anything, what you would have is the solar system. And then you could fly around and check it out. So like this is the this was like the thing I've been waiting for, you know, as we've been building it the whole time. I just want to stand on Europa and look in the sky and see Jupiter. I want to stand on Titan. I just want to, or, you know, be closer to, to Saturn and see it and see what it really looks like. And, um, and we can do that now. Um, or, you know, I mean, and right now what's really important is standing on the edge of Shackleton crater, um, and seeing what, it, what the lighting is really like and what it's really like going to be to work in that environment. Um, and so that, that I think is something that, you know, is really, it could be inspirational for the, for the next generation, for the kids, because, um, 
they can't visualize, you know, uh, without something like that, what it's really like to be in that environment. And as soon as they see it, I think it just, wow, that's really there. I want to go. I want to, I want to make this possible, you know? Um, you know, that's exciting. That is so exciting. Uh, by the way, Shackleton is one of the craters uh, on the South pole of the moon that everybody's trying to get to because we believe there may be ice at the bottom of it. But speaking of the bottom of it, we are at the bottom of this section. Uh, we're going to come right back in a couple of minutes with our gra- uh, astronaut, <laughs> with our guest, astronaut Greg Chamatov. You are listening to IROC Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio Network. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and you are tuned into the Space Revolution. We'll be right back. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to the Space Revolution. I am your host, Rick Tomlinson. Our guest is astronaut Greg Chamatov. So, um, Greg, we've been talking about your space team's project, which is just amazing. And as I was telling you, uh, we went through the break. Uh, it's blowing my mind. There's so many possibilities in terms of what we can really do out there. But speaking of really being out there, you are an astronaut. and You've been out there um, twice. Uh, how, how long were you on the station uh, during that longer? Almost 200 days um, altogether. Just a little about that. What was that like? <laughs> well, I can tell you this. The earth is not flat. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we just lost half our listeners. No, I'm kidding. No, our listeners are actually intelligent yeah. people. They okay. Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I don't know why I thought about that, but you know, it's just, it really cracks me up. Yeah, yeah. There are people out there that have that issue. I, that's a whole another conversation. But um, yeah. I, I, I but, go but, ahead. But the, well, but, you know, the, the, I think that you know, the 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 actually better the better answer is you know, it, seeing it with your own eyes, seeing the Earth with your own eyes is really, really something, really amazing. I mean, you know, because we we know. We know a lot. We know we know every. We've seen it in pictures. We've seen it in movies, and um, you know we know what the Earth is. But when you see it as one object, you know from a, you know not that far away. You know we're pretty close in, on the space station. But just to see it as a whole object, as a whole thing, you know, with your own eyes, um, just floating in space, and, and and be able to to look. The Earth is over there, and over here is nothing. Um, it, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because we've just spent the first half of the show talking about simulations. Right. And. But nothing from what I understand from all the astronauts, cosmonauts, private NASA that I've spoken to, nothing compares in any way, whether even the best possible simulation with actually seeing it from out there. Right. Yeah. And it's different every time you look at it, you know, just the, you know, different lighting conditions, different weather conditions, um, you know, different, uh, uh, different, different lighting on different parts of the earth, you know, different times of the orbit. And um, I mean, the space station orbit, you know, it's it, the fact that it's a really high inclination means you get to see a lot of the planet and the orbit, you know, the orbit doesn't stay fixed, you know, in inertial space. I mean, with respect to the stars it, you know, because the earth is not a sphere. Uh, there's a torque on that orbit and it's so it's always shifting, you know, about six or seven degrees per day. So, you know, over the course of almost two months, you know, you get to see every part of the earth at under different lighting conditions. So sometimes you're flying over Canada in the daytime, you know, and you don't see South America, you know, and then, you know, a few weeks later, you see South America in the daytime and you don't see Canada you know, in the daytime. Um, and so, and so, you know, you get sun glint off of different lakes and things that, you know, uh, during parts of that cycle and um, get to see the shoreline of Antarctica during parts of that cycle. And so it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, it, um, it's, I had that cycle. I had three of those full cycles of, you know, all, all lighting possibilities over the whole planet. I had about, you know, it was 183 days the first time. So it was like three of those, those cycles. And this, it's just, it's very beautiful. You know, it's really hard not to take a picture of everything. Every time you go to the window, you know, you're, you say, wow, you're taking pictures and you, but you want to also just soak it in and try to capture it, you know, in your soul and then not let it go. Uh, I tried one time to like go a whole orbit looking out the window without 
taking any pictures. And I saw the most incredible things during that orbit. It was killing me, you know, not to not to take pictures. Yeah, but there's I, I'm sure there's a Japanese saying about this or something. But, you know, there is there is one permanent camera um, and that's your mind. And, you know, we are in this age where we have to take pictures of everything, everything, everything. A lot of times you actually lose the contact with the actual thing you're looking at because you're so busy taking pictures for later. Um, and, but you'll always have those memories and they, they've, they've reached your soul, right? They're, they've, they've transformed who you are, right? Is that, is that something real? Uh, you know, my friend Frank White wrote the um, overview effect after his interviewing a lot of astronauts and cosmonauts. His assertion is that there is something that shifts in people who go into space. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it is a profound shift, I, I guess, it, but it's, um, uh, I don't know if it's easy to put into words, but I, I think it's just an appreciation, you know, for um, the way I like to put it is that, uh, you know, the the earth is, uh, we're part of the earth, you know, we're, we're a product of the earth and, but we're like, we're very special, you know, we may feel very small especially when you're looking at something that big, but we're a very special part of the earth. We're a part that can appreciate what it is. We're the only part that can appreciate what it is. And so to be out there and looking back at the earth, you know, even though we're, we're so small, we're the only part that can actually look at it and wonder or like, well, why is it the way it is? And, 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 and you know, and, and, uh, and really appreciate that. So that's, um, and, that, and then you don't feel as, as quite as small because that's, that's a, the northern part of the earth can really do that. <laughs> right, right. One of the uh, assertions in, in, in our nonprofit, the Earth Life Foundation, that I have is that one of our, the third principle we have, which is to explore and experience the universe, the assertion we make is that we are the mechanism and, and any other sentient beings, you know, and some other world out there, that by looking at, experiencing, touching, interacting with the universe, we make it alive. By, by our own perception and interaction. And, you know, you're talking about how hard it is to describe. I've had the same conversation, like with the mother of my daughter, my beautiful daughter, Alice. How do you describe the first time you look down at your child that's just been born, right? And she basically said the same things you just said, right? Except in this case, it's the child looking back at the mother us as human beings right you know she's like well i can't describe it there's just there's just a thing going this connection and da 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 um and i think hearing your voice just now that's kind of where you are right it's it's that kind of feeling this connectedness yeah this connectedness that you can't it, it's um you you might you may be able to leave the earth but you're, you're you know everything around you that you brought with you is that's keeping you alive is, you know, is dependent on the earth in it. So the string is never, uh, you know, never really cut. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it, it, it is, this is exactly right. It, it, it's like the child looking at the mother. That's, that's a perfect analogy. Oh, great. Right. Well, so, um, and by the way, that means that that same sort of wonder you were just talking uh, before the break about simulation of being on, what was it Europa? I think you said, or was it Europa? Um, I guess in Europa, you'd be wearing snowshoes or something, but, uh, but you know, you're out there and looking at it. Um, these are the kind of sense of wonder that we're all going to be able to experience as, as we break out. And, but then there's the, <laughs> then there's the real side of it. Like you're living in a, a little box, a little tube. Uh, how many people are on there, on there with you? Uh, four, three. Okay. So, What's that like? What, what is it like to hang out with, you know, three of your new best friends for 200 days? <laughs> okay. So a couple of, th a couple of thoughts that, you know, that connect directly to what you said. So here's a, here's a first thing. Um, you know, when you envision your whole life wanting to do that, and then finally you, you arrive right at this, in this case, the space station, um, you, you kind of never pictured in, in all your years leading up to that, that when you got there, it was your best friend's, letting you in 
But that's actually what happens because you've been with these people training for years now. And, and so when you get there, it's your family, it's your, it's for people you've been living with, you know, and, 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 and well, in this case in Russia and Japan and U S and Canada, you know, it's people you've been with for years. That's who opens the door and lets you in. So it, you know, so it's, they're not, they're not new friends. They're your, they're already your best friends. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's, that's pretty neat. The other thing is, um, when I was there, I was there in a, I was lucky, uh, in that up until that, up until the time I was there. And I think, uh, forever after the time, not forever after, but up and, um, but after that time, up until now, and probably for some time in the future, the space station, we had the most hardware in space ever <laughs> because, you know, space station was almost complete. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, million pounds of hardware, you know, for the space station, you know, the, the, the standard thing is it's the size of a football field, but it's really bigger because it's a football field in two different directions. You couldn't lay it down in a football field. It's, you would need two football fields to lay it on the ground. It's, so it's really massive, complex. And, um, and then with the shuttle attached to it, I came up on a shuttle and went down on a shuttle. So, um, you know, even though I trained in Russia, I didn't know which vehicle I was going to go up and down onto until the last two months before flight. Um, but and it, with the shuttle up there, you know, another quarter of a million pounds, it was the most stuff in space ever. And then the shuttle stopped flying, you know, soon after my last flight. So, um, um, you know, so it's going to be a while before we have that much stuff and, you know, attached uh Know, in one place, you know, it'll happen, but it's going to take a little while before we get to that size. So there were three people up there, um, you know, uh, you know, with all that, with all that space. And I was the, for most of my flight, I was the American, I was the U.S. crew member, and there were two Russians. And they pretty much stayed on their own side. You know, I would go down there and have meals with them, and they would come up and ask me if they could use an exercise bike once in a while. Um, but I did everything on the U.S., Japanese, European side of the space station, and they were working on the Russian side of the space station. And so, actually, when I was up there, most of my time I was alone uh, on a, on a, on a half of a space station. Um, and, you know, so I was glad to, you know, when they came and said, Hey, it's lunchtime, let's go. You know, I had some camaraderie and my camaraderie was around mealtimes and, you know, and then evenings when we would, you know, on a Friday night or something, we'd watch a movie together. Um, but it's a big space station, you know, um, it's not a small space. It's, uh, if you had to find somebody and they were not along the main corridor, you might have to search for five minutes to like to find them. Yeah, you don't get that feeling, uh, you know. Wow. Okay. And and you and your Russian compatriots uh, got along. Yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really sad what's going on now. It's, I mean, it's sad for so many reasons. But 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 was you know but you know the space station was really a flagship of international cooperation, and you know so much went into that, and and you know and it's still going on. I mean, it, I find it even hard to believe, but like right now, I mean, still working with. The Russians, you know, hundred. I mean, we can't operate the space station independently. They can, and we can. And so that communication and interaction is going on. hundred. I mean, at the level of, you know, the space program, it's hundred percent. You know, we're all friends and working together, and you know that hasn't changed. But uh, I find it even hard to believe now that you know people are traveling back and forth to train. You know, in the. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in Russia training right now. I would. I would feel I'm at constant risk of. You know, being abducted. <laughs> yeah, I just can't. It's, so it's really, really a shame because you know we really uh, spent you know thirty years uh, developing this uh, this international collaboration and built something amazing that was for the purpose of world peace and cooperation and and uh, at least you know with Russia it's just being destroyed. I mean that that that's never going to well, happen hopefully, again. Hopefully, um, I wouldn't say never again, but I think that. We'll learn from it and, you know, hopefully move on, uh, depending on what happens on the Russian government side of the world. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, when, when we were doing the Mir project way back in the day um, and our, our Russian team members and such, they were just they were great. We, we, we had great collaboration. Um, when I'm doing my talks, I'll be doing one this afternoon to a bunch of kids. And I'm going to point out that there's one place in the solar system where Americans and Russians don't just live and work together they actually care about and at the level of friends love each other and it's it's a couple hundred miles up right there right 
Yeah. And that's an example for all of us to, to be able to follow. So that's cool. Yeah. Hopefully it can continue to be an example. Hopefully. Yeah. You know. Well, look, um, we're going to wrap it up this section. Um, we'll be back in a minute. Okay. Spacers uh, talking to Greg Chamatoff, astronaut extraordinaire, entrepreneur, and uh, coming into our last section here. We have some very important questions for Greg. Very, very serious stuff coming right back. You're listening to IROC Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. The space revolution continues. Hey, spacers, coming into the last quarter of the hour here for um, the space revolution. I've got Greg Chamatoff, Canadian-American astronaut and entrepreneur. Uh, we've been having a fascinating conversation about both his uh, project, uh, which is the VR uh, space teams project, and actually being an astronaut, what it's like to go into space. And uh, so uh, we're going to uh, ask our traditional fun little questions here. Actually, I it very serious, Greg. Um, so you're flying in space. You're transiting the moon. Um, thousands of clicks an hour. Uh, and you can, so where you can actually feel the speed looking out your window. What music would you be listening to? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, the, the, yeah, the, your, your, the music was a big thing on the missions. That's true. Um, and, you know, and I watch my own uh, mission videos and um, a beautiful day by YouTube. That was that was uh, that one um, keeps inspiring me over and over again. Great. Great. I love that. Uh, now I have to ask this question. You, you guys have to use like AirPods and headphones, right? Because otherwise somebody's going to be like, I hate that country music you got going down there, man. You got to turn that off, right? I mean, or do you ever have a, t a moment where you just flood the station with sound? No, it's a, there's enough noise up there that if you want to listen to music, you probably need a headset. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> I, it, it just never occurred to me before. Like, you know, hey, turn that up. <laughs> so, all right. Um, was there a, um, a piece of literature, science fiction or science that inspired you to get into this field? Yeah. So there's, yeah, probably two things I'd bring up. What one is, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I loved Asimov and, um, and I am reading it all over again right now. Um, uh, probably because the foundation series came, you know, started on Apple. Um, and that was amazing. And I, you know, I said, okay, I need to, I need to, you know, relearn the story and catch up. So I'm ready for the next, next, next episode, next, next season. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the whole the whole foundation series and the robot series, and I was I was very inspired by that when I was a kid. But Star Trek, you know, this is you know video, not not books. But uh, that was really what you know. I kind of grew up on Star Trek. But um, but but something happened at the beginning of my flight. Uh, right, I, I, you know, we were allowed to bring five books up to the space station, and I had picked out you know some books, and um, and then Arthur C. Clarke passed away like just before my flight. And I swapped out all my books for, um, for his and, um, and, you know, I can't remember if I already had one, but maybe not. Cause I wasn't, cause I already read, you know, read, read, I brought ones that I read before. So 2001, 2010, 3001, um, uh, several others. And, and then like a book, a big book of short stories. And, um, so, yeah, so I brought up, I brought up, um, all, all Arthur C. Clarke, um, and kind of had a, uh, you know, a tribute to Arthur C. Clarke during my mission. So. Uh, you just, you like um, hit my strings. I, yeah. you can't see it on the podcast, but behind me is my poster signed by uncle Arthur. And, uh, he was actually a friend and, um, um, I threw a birthday party for him in Hollywood in 2001. Uh, and we, he showed up in VR. Uh, but, uh, got to know him down in Sri Lanka, um, an amazing gentleman and, um, a massively intense ping pong player, by the way. Um, he, he, there were three of us there. He kicked our ass, all three of our asses in a row. Boom. Right. Um, but anyway, he, uh, yeah, these guys, you know, set up a vision of the future. That's just so exciting. And, um, um, and you just inspired me. I'm going to go get the foundation trilogy. Um, I was also honored to have met Isaac. Uh, he knew about the space frontier foundation, which we called the foundation. And he thought that was funny. He thought that was funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. He had a wicked sense of humor, that guy. Uh, but anyway, I, um, I, I, I feel you on that, you know, and what, what was it though, that 
clicked you into, I'm going to be an astronaut. What, what did that? Well, okay. So that, <laughs> um, so I grew, I grew up in Montreal. Um, you know, the Apollo program was, was, you know, underway, um, when I, when I was a kid and my father was just blown away. He was an engineer and we were watching mission control and, you know, the rocket launches and, and, uh, he was just blown away by, you know, how, uh, how lucky those people were to, to have that job. He couldn't understand how do you get a job in mission control? Who are those people? Um, and Star Trek was happening at the same time. Right. And um, I was only five or, you know, basically at that time. And, um, but there was one interesting thing was that Captain Kirk, William Shatner went to the same high school as my father. And at five years old, I, I understood that this guy I was watching gallivanting around the galaxy was went to school with my father. And I think, you know, how do you, how do you separate reality from fiction at that age? You know? um, it just seemed all possible, you know? Um, yeah, well, here's this guy doing all this amazing stuff that looks really cool. I want to do that. And my father knows the guy, you know, it was really, uh, so, um, and then we went to see a launch. Uh, it was the launch of Apollo 11. It, we didn't go down there for the launch. We went to Florida for a vacation. Um, and I was six at the time. And, uh, and got to see Apollo 11 launch, and that was it. I I told my parents that um, that's that's what I wanted to do, and somehow managed to hold on to that for, for a very long time. Um, I get, I got to uh, I got to call William Shatner from the space station actually, and it turns out I'm the very first person who to call him from outer space. <laughs> and yeah, and I, I didn't I didn't and and it was just the strangest thing to be to talk to Captain Kirk and I was the one in space, you know, not him. It just didn't make sense. And that was, a but, but now he's gone. Uh, now he's gone. And, um, yeah, I actually saw him last week for about four minutes. Um, and, uh, I spent three of those minutes trying to remind him that in 20, in 2000, I had told him all this cool stuff was going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> but he is such a gentleman, such a uh, visionary kind of guy. I, I had always thought, well, not always, but for so many years, I thought he was like this ham actor or whatever. But when I watched him get out of the Blue Origin capsule and 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 crying and talking about the Earth, um, such a real thing. And the fact that he inspired you, um, and then you were able to reach back from up there—that's uh, cool. That's poetry. That's definitely poetry, right? Yeah, it was. It's uh, very lucky because you know we we basically when you're up there for for long enough, NASA gives you opportunity to choose a few events yourself. Like they don't. You know, they are always got to choose which schools or events they're going to have you do appearances at, you know, given a limited amount of time from orbit to do that kind of thing. But you get to choose one a month uh, if you're when you're up there on the space station. So um, and of course, most of the time I chose a school of kids um, and, uh, you know, spoke to as many kids as I could. Um, but one of my events was for me. And that, that was that's, it. that's incredible. So um, we're going to be kind of running into our the end of the show here, but. We have a, a wide range of people that are listening, um, but some of them are younger. Actually, when we finish this, I'm going to go talk to a bunch of uh, like 14 year olds, which terrifies me because they are completely unfiltered and they are going to hold me to account to everything I say to them on stage. But at the same point, at the, you know, by the same token, people like you and I, our job is to inspire them and, and to show them the path. Unfortunately, most of them are not going to have a major TV star who portrays a space captain who went to school with their dad. They're going to need some, <laughs> which is really cool. But that's really cool. That's really cool. So a, we'll do this in two parts. How do you feel about the future of, of what's happening in space right now? Just at the big picture. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's really ramping up again. I think there was a, you know, there was a time, I think, you know, because I was at NASA and, and, you know, the shuttle program retired and there was a, you know, um, there was a, a real sense of, you know, things slowing down. I mean, there was a, there was a, pay, a huge, uh, difference in pace between how things were, um, going, you know, when I started in the astronaut office, when we were flying shuttles, shuttles were flying five to seven times a year, you know, with, you know, six or seven people on them. That's like 50 people a year going into space. Um, you know, a lot of different countries were, you know, participating with us. Um, and then there's, you know, building the space station and we were ramping up the number of crew on board. Um, 
But once the shuttle stopped flying, you know, missions are six months long. And if there was three people on board, it's it's only six people a year flying. This is a very different pace. Um, and, you know, the astronaut office went from, you know, 142 people down to, you know, less than half of that, um, you know, in that time period. Um, but things are really picking up now. I mean, with Artemis, uh, you know, we're about to go back to the moon uh, for real. It's really exciting that, you know, that... Um, that took a while um, to get around, to get around to that, but you know, I, I left NASA, you know, at a time when uh, we were really getting started on that, and now it's really happening. So that's really exciting, and uh, I think that's the beginning of you know a, a big push out. I um, I know there was a time, you know, uh, when we first put the space station up, and I felt like it was a, it was a. I think I've heard you mention this too. I don't know how many people notice, but, you know, in the year 2000, you know, the first crew went up to the space station and and that was the first moment where we became a permanent uh, spacefaring species. As long as we kept the space station flying and didn't have to abandon it um, and hopefully the next thing comes along and there's, you know, other other space stations and moon bases and other things coming. That was the transition. So, you know, happened to be exactly the year 2000, you know, when we made that transition. And, um, and I, and so I, I feel now very reassured that now there's, you know, the Chinese space station is there and we're going to the moon. And, you know, I think that really will be the time, the year 2000, that we made that transition to always having people in space and then the number just growing and growing and growing. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing, uh, and I'm doing everything, you know, all my projects and all my classes, you know, at, at the university are all about, you know, bases on the moon and exploration and robot teaming with humans. And, um, you know, we're, I think it's very exciting. Time. Yeah. And, and then hopefully this year, um, the gateway opens up, uh, no pun intended, the, uh, the railroad opens up, um, and the transportation systems that will allow people to go. I, my, my old friend, uh, Bill Gerstenmeyer, um, at one point pointed out to me that, you know, you've said you had largely a lot of the time there were three people on, on the station. And he pointed out to me that it takes roughly, roughly 2.75 people just to keep the lights on. Right, which leaves a quarter of a person when you were up there, and uh, or person time to to dream, to come up with new products, to come up with new ideas, uh, all of that, and and yet look at all the great things we've gotten. Now, if you project forward, and we're about to open the gates and and let people go out there, it's going to be staggering the stuff we come up with. It's going to be staggering because we're going to be have we're going to have thousands of human minds out there. The ones you're training, by the way, in VR. Um, so the future is going to be amazing. So as we prepare for that, got a kid sitting out there who's listening, a young person, someone in the world who's listening. Um, again, maybe they didn't have the, the relationship to Captain Kirk that you do. Um, what do you tell them? What, what would you, what would your, or, or they're an entrepreneur who wants to get involved in space, whatever it is, what would you tell them about getting involved? You know, uh, the thing that really struck me when I was on the space station was, you know, there's a, there's a window in the, in the, you know, two windows in the Japanese module that look out, you know, to the sort of to the North, um, because, you know, the orbits inclined, but basically looks to the North and, um, but they're beautiful windows and you, you know, the biggest windows you can look out of to like see, you know, the whole earth and, and, and also it's a perspective where there's the earth below and the sky above and the stars, you know, when, when we come around the dark, the, the, the dark side, the back side of the earth away from the sun, and you can actually see the stars in the sky. And um, but outside that window also, there's, you know, a platform, a Japanese experiment platform and the whole truss going out the port side with massive solar panels on it. And um, so I would spend a lot of time. In fact, I slept by that window a lot because I, I just I would go there, stare out. You know, when it was time to go to bed, I'd just go stare out that window and it'd be really hard to leave it. So sometimes I just put my sleeping bag by that window and fell asleep looking out the window. Um, and the feeling that I had was this isn't science fiction anymore. This isn't just a dream anymore. We are, we are really there, you know, and we're there in a, in a big way. I mean, that space station is a big, it's a big space station. Um, and all we needed to do, you know, would be strap on some engines that, that, that had enough thrust and that space station could, you know, fly off to Mars and, 
it would work perfectly fine around Mars as well. It just, it, it happens to not be able to get there, but it, you know, but uh, if you could push it fast enough, it would go to Mars and those solar panels would work at Mars too. You might have to turn a few experiments off. Um, so we're really, we're there, you know, we're there. And, uh, and, and the other thing is, is you know, we adapt to space. I mean, it, it, it's incredible how we, we adapt. It's, it, when I, after six months on the space station, I couldn't remember what it was like to feel gravity, to sit in a, in a chair like I'm sitting in right now. It's like, I want, I like, it's going to be really weird when I sit down again, you know, and I feel pressure on the bottom of my feet. Um, uh, we adapt to that environment. You know, it's a, it's a human experience to live in, to live and work in space. It's not a, it's, it, it's going to be a massive human experience that, that a lot of people are going to share. It's going to become normal. Um, it became normal for me after six months. I was perfectly happy. I could have stayed up there forever. Um, you know, it, um, and, uh, and so uh, I think for, for everybody who's, you know, kind of dreaming of the future, you know, it's, it's, it's not a sci-fi movie. It's for real. And you can go there and we will, we will. And, and you will. That's perfect. Thank you, Greg Chamatop. That was it. That was beautiful. I'm not even going to say anything else. That was beautiful. Thanks for showing up on the space revolution and being a part of that revolution. And um, spacers, I just want to thank you for tuning in. We're taking this program to a new level. This is the first episode of this new level we're going for. We're going to raise our orbit, let's say. Um, and uh, you are listening to the space revolution on iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. We are heading out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.